0: you're bored and you've got nothing else to do, you might want to ask a historian about pivotal moments in history, Those, those moments when everything changed, when society could have gone one way, but because of what happened, they went the other way, and what would be different if they hadn't done that. Perhaps you could start, I don't know, 1066, the Battle of Hastings, where William the Conqueror changes pretty much all of history by conquering England and becoming king. An unexpected development that really affected history in a lot of ways. Maybe you go to 1776 when George Washington gambles the entire American Revolution on crossing an icy river. Or perhaps maybe you go to July 2nd, 1863 when Joshua Chamberlain and the 20th Maine Infantry Regiment, standing at Round Top in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, waver and bend and creak and and almost break, but never do. And maybe they save the Union that day. Or you could go to a bright June day in 1942, Pacific Ocean. When in space of five minutes, the entire course of the Pacific War between the United States and Japan is forever changed in, in just a few, very few short minutes. All of these moments in history are almost instantaneous. I mean, on a time scale, they're pretty instant. They're a day, a few hours, a few minutes. But most changes in history happen over Time they they happen over a period of perhaps years, maybe even centuries. They happen when cultures collide and ideas collide and one way or another one becomes dominant, usually because of human nature. In ancient Ionia, and I know I've beaten this to death over the past few days, but there's a reason why two men with different ideas about how things worked. Pythagoras, who believed in the <laughs> the transcendency and mysticism of the gods, and Democritus, who believed that everything had an explanation in nature, who believed that things could be explained. Ultimately, his followers would come up with the idea of atoms, of everything being made of atoms. They would in fact say, Nothing exists except for atoms and space. All else is opinion. Democritus's ideas, of course, would challenge the status quo. They would, they would question time-honored and time-held traditions and, and positions about things. And because of where he was in Ionia, rather than in one of the large cities of, of uh, the empires of that era... He was allowed to get away with these ideas, and eventually he and his followers stood really on the cusp of higher mathematics. They were almost there. And had they managed to get there, perhaps the world changes in a different course than we're familiar with because we have calculus long before Isaac Newton existed. We have these things in the time of Christ. We have Science that explains things. Instead, Pythagoras, with his idea, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, which he believed revealed the transcendency of the gods, and his mysticism, his his idea that the gods were still responsible for everything, and that really all you were doing was looking for the gods, you weren't really doing anything else. These two schools debated, argued, and eventually... Zeus, I guess, got angry. There's some more political ideology to this, but eventually Zeus gets mad, and Democritus's ideas are literally lost to history. Very little of his writings survive, very little of his his passion for what was science survives. But Pythagoras' ideas and his belief in mysticism, his belief that... The gods were revealed in the mathematics, and the gods had certain ideas about how society should function, which were the opposite, the antithesis of what Democritus believed, um, took hold, and ultimately, the, the 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 end result was a society that, until the Scientific Enlightenment of the 1700s and 1800s, really lived by a religious bent with everything in science being forced to conform to the religious, to the religiosity of the era, even Galileo, Copernicus, others as well. That was one moment in history that took decades to set the course for the human future. In the early 1900s, the early part of the 20th century, a similar moment occurred. In 1898, the United States had gone to war with Spain, primarily because of something called yellow journalism. By now, you will know that very little of what Spain was accused of in 1898, remember the main down with Spain, actually happened. But the media of that era used sensationalism, big, bold headlines, lots of pictures, lots of Anonymous sources and quotes, that sort of thing. Uh, my, my friend, Neil Bortz, who was a former radio, retired radio show host in Atlanta, refers to this as the loud theory. The, the louder something is, the less likely it actually contains any useful information. He refers to this, in, in particularly in car commercials. Uh, the louder a car commercial is, the less likely the car is worth anything um, and the less likely it's a good deal but it applies in media as well. The louder something is, the louder someone tries to push their information with, the more sensationalistic they try to be, the less likely there's actually any information in that. And this causes, well, it caused the Spanish-American War, which, you know, again, we're still dealing with some of the results of that today. In the early 1900s, after the Spanish-American War settled down, and as Journalism really struggled to find itself in the young, the middle, now middle-aged republic. There was a great deal of technology changes where pictures and telegraphs and information could be received much further. And there was a lot of discussion about where, how does the public relate to the media, which relates to the government, which relates back to the public. which How does this all work together for the betterment of the republic? There were two men. Much like Democritus and Pythagoras, there were two men in the United States in those days. First guy was a guy by the name of John Dewey. Now John Dewey, who's not the guy that invented the Dewey Decimal System, by the way, don't, don't Google that because it's not the same guy. Um, his ideas really aligned with Montesquieu, the idea of an engaged citizen, the idea of an engaged uh, in, you know, enlightened, citizen that participated in everything. And even though it was a republic, you still have to be engaged. He believed very firmly that the public was fully capable of understanding complex policy issues, that the the people could best decide these issues. He believed that the information was useful to all the members of society, that, all. the people should be allowed to see the pure information, and because of that, we would get better policy decisions, better ideas, coming from the full disclosure of information. This seems very, I don't know, seems kind of like what we all say we want. In fact, he wrote a book called The, The Public and Its Problems, in which he outlined his idea that The public should be a great community. And by sharing all of this information would become such a great community that we would make good policy decisions and we would be, you know, a little less, I don't know, bellicose, I guess, when it came to Spain blowing things up. The second guy was a guy by the name of Walter Lippmann, which is a name you may very well have heard. There are numerous journalistic schools named after him. Some awards named after him. And, as you might expect, he disagreed with Dewey. He believed wholeheartedly that high-powered journalism was wasted, wasted, on ordinary citizens. He just absolutely believed that it was pointless to even try to explain these complex issues to ordinary citizens. He believed that it was useful to decision-makers. He believed that decision-makers needed that high-powered journalism, but ordinary citizens, meh, who cares? They don't really understand it. They don't really need it. Thirdly, and most importantly, I think, he did not believe that news equaled truth now, that may sound like a strange thing to say when you're dealing with someone who is a journalist but he really didn't believe that he he thought that news and truth were separate ideas that fed different <laughs> different policy i guess uh, ideologies and whether or not somebody really needed to be in this whole thing. Lippmann believed that the the, the debate was pretty simple. He, he he really believed that men could be controlled by what he called propaganda. He didn't mean it in the same terms that we mean it today, but but by a, a propaganda machine of the government overseen by the government that could then control these things and of course he too wrote a book called public opinion the an important work on the theory of public opinion in relation to traditional democratic theories he his ideas of course were such that you know he wanted this this control he ended up um aligning himself with another journalist by the name of almond now, Almond and Lippman would form what would ultimately be called the Lippman-Almond Consensus. This was, well, I mean, I'm just going to share it with you and see what you think of this. Their number one conclusion was that, polit- polit- that public opinion is volatile. It, it's never stable. It changes too fast. When it's extre- It's always in the extreme. It's either bellicose when it when when upset, or it's too soft when it shouldn't be. He all they also believed that public opinion was incoherent, that it could never actually really be understood, what the public actually believed and wanted. And they believed that public opinion was irrelevant when it came to establishing policy decisions. They just did not believe that the US citizens could be useful. Lacking an organized or consistent structure to such extent that the views of the U.S. citizens could best be be described as (laughs) non-attitudes. They didn't understand, nor did they influence the very offense upon which their lives and happiness were known to depend. Lippmann would go so far as to describe the mass man as a bewildered herd who must be governed by a specialized class whose interests reach beyond the locality. The elite class of intellectuals and experts were to be a machinery of knowledge to circumvent the primary defect of democracy, which was the impossible idea of the omnipresence, the omnicompetent, sorry, citizen, or as Montesquieu would have put it, the engaged citizen. This was what eventually became known as a stereotype. Lippman was actually the man who coined the term stereotype, and he used it to apply to the the average American in his belief of how the media would work with you. As you see there in those outlines, you see a lot of how media actually views you today, don't you? This all becomes about because Walter Lippman wins the philosophical debate with John Dewey over what media actually is, what it does, and why it does it. Is it useful for controlling policy decisions to, uh, or limiting those policy decisions to a few elite people who understand things because you small people, you just don't get it. You're just, you're just a passionate, incoherent blob that, that doesn't have any anything really to say in all this. And of course, Dewey's contributions to all this have all but been forgotten. We don't even, most of us don't even know Dewey's name. And when we do know it, we confuse him with the guy that invented the Dewey decimal system, which wasn't this guy. His ideas, though, still resonate. And in recent years, there of course has been much consideration of returning to some of Dewey's ideas this idea of let's get media back to just report it just the facts ma'am as opposed to being you know opinions and guiding people to the correct conclusions as the Stockton reporter once Stockton record reporter once once told me the interesting thing about Lipman is that he will become very disillusioned with his own ideas despite the fact that today journalism schools and journalism awards are still named after him he himself would start to lean more towards dewey's ideas in journalism he got very mm, disenchanted with how media how the elites were running the media and the reason why he got disenchanted was well He began to realize in 1932 that the so-called elites who were making these policy decisions weren't any smarter than anybody else. In fact, he would say, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is no crusader. He's no tribune of the people. He is no enemy of entrenched privilege. He is, in fact, a pleasant man who, without any important qualifications for the office, would very much like to be president. He would stand by that. He would he would repeat it years later as Roosevelt would be reelected and reelected primarily because of populist ideas and control of the media. He would later write another book, the, the second book called The Public Philosophy, in which he would repudiate many of his own ideas as presented and, and as were being followed. The media as a control agent uh, for a political elite. Who really want the public just to mm, agree with them rather than argue with them. He would write a book that would basically repudiate all of that. And that book would be, what's the word for it, uh, trashed in, in liberal political circles. And his previous ideas would be promoted and encouraged and talked about. And at the end of the day, his other books this other book would kind of go out the window. When we look at Dewey versus Lippmann today, we we have to ask ourselves the debate in the news media today. I asked the question on Sunday, what's wrong with the media? And a lot of folks would would chime in. Well, several folks chimed in on things with, you know, there's this problem, there's this problem, there's too much interaction between media and government there's too much there's too much sensationalism there's too much of this there's too much of that the question you have to ask yourself is how does the media actually treat you today and by you i mean me but you get the idea do they treat you as a consumer or a partner because that will tell you whether or not they're lipmanites or deweyites if they treat you as a partner hey dave here's some information we'd like you to think about and tell us what you think versus Dave, here's the information we want you to know. And because you know this information, you will agree with us that this is the proper position. Do they treat us as a consumer or as a partner? And the bigger question you have to ask yourself at this point is how does social media impact that? How does social media grow into this? Now, Is social media, and this is the big question nowadays, is social media a publisher or is it simply, you know, a repeat of things? What exactly is social media when it comes to this news media idea? And how does it impact that question of consumer or partner? Does social media enhance or inhibit public discussion of ideas. And and on the surface, it seems like Dewey's idea of a great community should be very easily possible on social media. It should be, right? It should be a place where we can gather and discuss things and reach out with more folks and and the likes of that. But somehow or another, it doesn't turn out that way, does it? Somehow or another, it works out as... (laughs) it's just argument and when the social media companies don't like what you say they simply squash it don't they what's wrong with the media well at one time in our nation's history we could have gone one way Dewey's way but instead we went Lippmann's way now how much of a decision we had in that as a people I don't know It may be that the the media companies just decided that that's what they wanted because, really, who doesn't want power? It may be that. Can we change it? That's a good question. Can we change it? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say probably not. Do we really care that much about it? I mean, that's the first step. If we really cared that much about it, then we could change it. I don't think we do. And I've told you my social media theory about you only follow people on social media, not Facebook, but Twitter and other social media, you only follow people that are going to make you mad. Facebook's a little bit different because there's so many people on it. You can't escape the people that will make you mad. You just can't. The other social media platforms tend to be very, very very echo chamber driven. So all you ever hear is what you want to hear. How many different websites, news sites, just in the last 10 years or 20 years, have started out as, we're just going to bring you the news. Dave, are you tired of all the bias in the media? Here's a news site. Here's a newsletter. Here's a news place. Here's a channel that only covers the news for you to make up your mind, fair and balanced, you know? And what do they end up as? They end up as just another partisan site over over a bit of time. Because at the end of the day, they want to sell ads. And the reality is selling ads requires mm, eyeballs. It requires, that's the old, that's a, that tells you how long I've been around eyeballs was a phrase they used in the early days of the internet. How many people see something? clicks, I guess it's click throughs is, is the, the phrase now unless it's changed. I don't know. Um, you got to get, you got to get, you got to get clicks on things. You got to get, you got to get ads. You got to get people to see ads and you don't do that by being. dewey Do you, you don't do that by being calm and concise and caring and sharing information. You do that by being loud, obnoxious, big headlines, big pictures, maybe some quotes about the. You know, the Lippman School is alive and well, even though Lippman himself probably probably would not like that. What's wrong with the media today should be obvious to us, but somehow or another it's not. Somehow or another, we we don't know its history and we don't know how we got here to begin with, and so we don't really understand what is wrong with it, other than we we innately know that something is wrong just like the Ionians knew there's something wrong with this idea of a god for everything we we know there's something wrong with the idea of a media as pervasive and controlling as the one that there is that's not what media is supposed to do it's not what it's not what it's supposed to be but when it comes to actually putting our finger on it then we're not quite as uh, we're not quite as adept at it are we but the reality of it is that the, the answer is very clear. The answer is not that hard to see, if you think about it, is it? The answer is, what's wrong with the media? It's us.